0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn, and this is the 10x9 podcast. I'm recording this the morning after a wonderful evening at Port Stewart's Flowerfield Arts Centre. We had nine amazing stories on the theme family, and there are two of them on this podcast for you both from first-timers.
1: Perhaps her greatest quest was the acquisition of a rare Glastonbury thorn, sprung supposedly miraculously from the staff of Joseph of Arimathea.
2: Broken pieces had been put back together and were highlighted with golden dust. Grandad told us about his Japanese friend who knew how to fix porcelain.
0: So we'll hear about a much-missed mum with green fingers and a vase that symbolised a lifelong love. And uh, a bit of a gaff by me. But just before we do, I want to do a shout-out to Joy Perkins in Australia, who signed up to support us on Patreon. Many thanks, Joy. And if any of you get the same urge, I promise I'll give you a shout-out too. Okay, on with the show, and we were in beautiful Port Stewart for our family event. Here's first-timer Alice Lewis.
1: It's a hot summer's day. Our mother has let it be known... That there's an ordeal in store for us, her two youngest children. Not only must we endure the weekly hair washing ritual, bent awkwardly over the bathroom sink, mum's fingertips vigorous on our scalps, it's also time for the dreaded home haircut. This torture involves standing still on sheets of newspaper, eyes screwed shut against the slicing scissors, Breath held against tiny, suffocating slivers of hair. My brother and I decide we won't tolerate it this time. We hatch a plan. We'll hide in the garden. We know that we'll need supplies, so somehow we manage to take some digestive biscuits and slather them with jam, while my bu- busy mother isn't looking. We run to the bottom of our back garden and hide, crouching behind an old wooden bunker where the dog sleeps. Time passes, hours it seems. We're so pleased with ourselves and our clever plan. It's working so well. We know we have to ration our supplies, so we bravely clutch our jammy biscuits in hot, sticky hands. And then the wasps come. This is an ordeal worse than any haircut, so we flee back up the garden and into the house, our brief garden sanctuary abandoned. The funny thing is... Mum must have been distracted or taken pity on us because neither hair washing nor haircuts took place that evening. Forty years later and we're middle-aged with children of our own. Our beloved mother died four years ago on the 1st of May. At her funeral we sang Bring flowers of the rarest, bring flowers of the fairest from garden and woodland and hillside and dale. Mummy was our very own Queen of the May, not least because of her love of flowers and all growing things. We lived in a small semi-detached house in South Belfast in the escalating horrors of the early troubles. There were 10 children, but the older ones had gone to university or left home as the younger ones were coming up. All the same, it was a packed, busy, chaotic household my mother ensured that we were fed, clothed, and well-educated. And despite rearing all those children, cooking and baking, washing clothes and cleaning, she managed to maintain a garden of flowers and shrubs, fruit and vegetables. One of my earliest memories is of breathing in the heady scent of dusky, rusty wallflowers and being fascinated by the tiny raindrop cupped in the centre of each lupin leaf. Mum taught me their names, as I followed at her feet while she hung out the washing. Mum's love of plants was natural and innate, and like any true gardener, verged on the obsessive and covetous. When we visited country parks or anywhere with gardens, which was most weekends, Mum was notorious for just taking a wee slip. Much to the mortification of her children, the kitchen window sill was crowded with these slips, taking root in jam jars filled with water. Without fail, they grew for her, and her garden was a rambling, vibrant jumble. Upon learning of an interesting new flower or shrub, or reading about a plant with healing properties, she wouldn't rest until she possessed it. Perhaps her greatest quest was the acquisition of a rare Glastonbury thorn. For years we knew of her yearning for this mystical tree, sprung supposedly miraculously from the staff of Joseph of Arimathea, a figure associated with Jesus' burial, and also the Holy Grail. Uniquely, it blossoms twice a year, with the Queen herself traditionally gifted a holy spray each Christmas. The story of how my mother acquired it highlights many of her qualities, determination, faith, hope, and above all, her natural charm and easy way with people. While visiting my sister at Oxford, Mum was taken to the University's Botanic Gardens, the oldest in Britain, and more importantly, home to a Glastonbury thorn. (laughs) Approaching a rather scruffily dressed man working in the gardens, whom she took for casual staff, Mum got chatting and expressed her desire to have the holy thorn. The man was none other than the head gardener of the Botanic Gardens himself. No doubt he was bemused at her audacity. Perhaps he recognised a kindred spirit. Or maybe mum's easy charm and vivacity simply won him over. Whatever the exchange, he declared, come back in five years and I'll have your thorn. For the sacred tree could not simply be grown from a cutting. It required the delicate and uncertain process of grafting the true thorn onto rootstock. Five years passed, and my sister, now working in London, duly travelled back to collect the precious gift too big for the boot, the five-foot thorn tree, took up the entire back seat of her car as she transported it by ferry across the Irish Sea. Mum was delighted and watched anxiously over its transplantation and settling in. Happily and somewhat miraculously, the noble tree thrived in our modest suburban garden. For the rest of her life, Mum led a twice-yearly pilgrimage up the garden to revere its sacred white blossom. The story of how she'd charmed one of Britain's most distinguished gardeners and secured her own holy grail became a family legend. We placed a boy on her grave. Her gardening methods were anything but formal or precise. She had to snatch time where she could find it. I can still see her, on her knees, pulling up handfuls of unwanted weeds, or stooping in her apron to inspect the progress of a plant. While she did dishes or kneaded bread in the kitchen, her eyes were always on the garden through the window. The luminous play of sunlight on catkins was a particular delight, the exuberance of cascading clematis another. I believe Mum's garden was a sanctuary in its truest sense of a holy place. It was a place to cultivate and enjoy beauty for beauty's sake to enjoy communion with life itself and the growth of trees, plants, and flowers, to witness annually the miracle of regeneration, to inhale what she would laughingly call the odour of sanctity. Mum didn't hold the flowers with no fragrance. Each spring bulb was a kind of revelation, a symbol of the resurrection and eternal life. These things weren't metaphorical for Mum. They were deeply held beliefs that imbued her life with meaning and grace. And of course, the garden had its thorns, was indeed crowned with the holiest of thorns. Mum walked often in her own garden of Gethsemane. The garden was also a sanctuary for the wildlife she cherished. There was the blackbird she fed with cheese, the tadpole she nurtured devotedly, and the hedgehog she was desperate to cultivate as a regular visitor and slug catcher. Her delight in these creatures had an innocence and joy that was mirrored in her own zeal for life. How much greater was her love for her ten children and her unwavering interest, concern, and pride at their progress through life. Birds were an especial joy. The regular purchase of huge sacks of nuts, combined with an organic gardening approach ahead of its time, ensured they were frequent visitors. She loved to hear them sing. Her own astonishing singing voice soared at daily mass, another place of sanctuary. Her unshakable faith was lived out with compassion and love, and above all, in community. At her funeral, the chapel was filled with people, singing, and sunlight. I stand in my own garden a year on from her death. A week before she died on Easter Tuesday, she came to visit and walked in this garden. I can see her so clearly, laughing and smiling in the spring sunshine, and bending to embrace my then five-year-old son among the apple trees. Grief is exhausting and bewildering. I walked where the lily of the valley, another of her favourites, grows. The tiny, exquisite fells just beginning to emerge among fresh green spears, their scent so poignant now. Traditionally, they symbolise the tears of Our Lady, Heavenly Mother, Queen of the May. I breathe in. Tears of a mother grieving her child. I breathe out. Tears of a child grieving her mother. It is a kind of healing.
0: Oh, Alice, what a wonderful way to honour your mum. Thanks so much for that. It was beautiful. And if, like Alice, you've a story to tell, or even just an idea for a story, then get in touch at 10 dot 9com Or contact us through our social media channels, the usual places, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. First timers are especially welcome. Okay, on to our second story and it's from another first timer. Here's Maura Doran, no relation to me. Take it away, Maura.
2: Childhood for me was a happy time, despite being the eldest of six and therefore having to be the sensible one. Part of that happiness was due to spending a lot of time with my two sets of grandparents. My mum's parents lived in a rural setting in County Tyrone. There, we were close to nature, learning how to look after hens, milk the goat, and collect berries to make jam. In contrast, my dad's parents lived on a busy road in Belfast. There, we listened to Percy French and John McCormick singing from a large brown gramophone. Afterwards, we would sing the Mountains of morn or bless this house at the top of our voices, with Granny accompanying us on the piano. Poor Granny. Grandad loved to cook. Granny hated cooking. She preferred to sing or write, so the rhythm of the house was well balanced. For holidays and high days, my second sister and I would often stay over with our grandparents in Belfast. Nighttimes, so we would lie in the big old bed at the top of the house, enjoying the noise outside and the reflecting lights from the constant traffic. The bed smelt of lavender. The pillows were deep and soft. Their house was a treasure trove of books, travel souvenirs and pictures. My grandmother's most precious item was a porcelain vase that she and grandad had brought back from Italy. The vase took pride of place on top of the piano. Vibrant colours depicted nine ladies dancing. My sister and I often pretended to be those beautiful ladies with their elegant gowns and curled golden tresses. Boy, did we have good imaginations. One summer night, we lay in the big wrought iron bed. We could hear Grandad humming as he pottered in the kitchen, most likely preparing porridge for the morning. Granny was silent. That meant that she was writing. The house was happy, warm and snug. We were loved and spoiled as we read our books under the thick cotton sheets on a heavy floral bedspread. Drifting into doziness, a loud crash broke the calm. Worried about what might have happened, we made our way down the stairs towards the noise. Mimi, Granny's black cat, met us on the landing as she scarpered up them. Downstairs, the vase lay in three pieces on the floor. The piano looked lonely and incomplete without its usual companion. Granny was upset and complaining about the culprit, Mimi. Grandad went in search of a cardboard box, into which he carefully gathered up the broken pieces. Sad to be leaving the next day, my sister and I did a a drawing for Granny. We left it on the top of the bed. Our creation couldn't compare with the artisans of Italy, but we hoped that Granny would enjoy our nine dancing ladies. Summer and autumn came and went, and we visited our grandparents many times, always noting the empty space in the piano and feeling that something was missing. That Christmas we were excited to be back to stay in Belfast. The house was bright and buzzing with family and friends. All the familiar Christmas signs were in place. The tree, the manger, the cards, and slap bang back in its place on the piano with the vase. The broken pieces had been put back together. And were highlighted with golden dust. Grandad told us about his Japanese friend who knew how to fix porcelain. He talked about kintsugi, whatever that was. We listened, but only took in the bit about joining with gold. Anyway, we already knew that he and Granny were joined with their golden rings. Somehow, the vase was now more than a travel souvenir; it had become a precious symbol of love, a talking point. It was the star that Christmas. Later that night, two little girls, tired and happy, flip-flopped into the big bed at the top of the house with Mimi. Their framed drawing of nine dancing ladies looked down on the three of them from the bedroom wall. My grandparents are now long gone, but when I look at the vase, I think back to my happy times with them. I also hear my granddad discussing the meaning of Kintsugi. It means golden journey. As an adult now, I can fully appreciate its meaning, why the vase commanded so much attention that Christmas. In Japan, broken items are reassembled and glued together with a precious tree sap and gold dust. No attempt is made to disguise the damage, and the fault lines are beautiful and strong. The powdered gold highlights the fractures, and it becomes part of the object's history. When we are young, we aspire to perfection in work, parents, family relationships. Dreams are often shattered. Life can throw tough blows. We humans are fragile. We can crack. Kintsugi recognises human fragility, that each of us develops our own personal scars as we journey through life. It celebrates our imperfections, which should never be hidden. After all, our cracks could be the birth of something new, just like my grandparents' has.
0: Mara, thank you so much. What a gorgeous story. And thanks for the lesson on Kintsugi. I hope both you and Alice will be back with more 10 by 9 stories. And that is pretty much it for this podcast, except, well, here's a little bit from last night. I was about to close out the first half of the evening when I made a bit of a blunder. Thank you very much Maura. It was a pleasure, thank you. Uh, We're going to take a short break, 10 minutes, get you, allow you to take comfort breaks, spread your legs, stretch your legs. (laughs) Oh God. believe it oh god i'm very sorry this is a we always say this is not a family event but i mean i really didn't mean to go that far anyway um we will stretch your legs folks and we'll be back in 10 minutes with four more stories on the theme family thank you well what can i say the audience laughed and it could happen to anyone And that really is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10x9 dates on our website, 10x9.com, including some special events over the summer, and keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10x9 and the 10x9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who made this week's 10x9 happen the wonderful people at Flowerfield in Port Stewart. At Shona, Shauna, Bernie and Anthony. The incredible and generous audience and of course all our storytellers but especially Alice Lewis and Maura Dorn. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon but for now, bye bye.